Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show today's podcast is sponsored by raycon get crisp Powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon is offering you 15% off all their products. And here's all you've got to do to get the deal. Go to buyraycon.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. For those of you who hate their phone bill and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile has got the wireless plan just for you. It's only $15 a month and you can get the plan shipped to your door for free by going to mintmobile.com gold. There are some days where I really feel like I'm living in a type of financial twilight zone. Today was one of those days because we had a lot of news both yesterday and today. You got a Fed governor coming out yesterday and basically admitting that inflation is here to stay, that we're going to have higher inflation for a long time and get used to it. And, you know, we're not going to go back down to 2%. And you get these record trade deficits coming out today. You get prices skyrocketing across the board, especially in energy, oil, natural gas, coal. In fact, look at the price of oil again today. You know, since the beginning of the year, I've been forecasting on this podcast that oil prices would hit $80 a barrel. And we came to within about 50 cents of that figure today. In fact, we closed above $79 a barrel for the first time in seven years. 
But if you look at a long-term chart for the price of oil, this move is just getting started. We're barely breaking out. There's going to be a little resistance up around $100 a barrel, and I still think that price is really possible before the end of the year. But what could happen in 2022 is we could take out the 2008 high, which was about $150 a barrel or maybe $145-ish, but I think once we take out that high, look out, we can have a parabolic move up to $200 a barrel or higher. But not just the energy complex, but a whole host of commodities that are just making multi-year highs. At the same time, you've got the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States talking openly about the possibility that the U.S. is going to default on its debt, that if we don't increase the debt ceiling and borrow more money that those of you who were dumb enough to lend the U.S. money in the first place, you're not going to get paid back. Right? Nobody is saying, don't worry, creditors, we're going to protect you. If we can't go deeper into debt, we got you covered. We're going to find a way to pay our bills. We're going to cut spending on other areas because we want to honor our debts or we're going to increase taxes on the American public because, you know, the American public borrowed this money and the public wants to repay its debts because we're America and we always pay our bills. So don't worry, bondholders. If you're holding U.S. Treasuries, their money good. Don't worry about the debt ceiling because if we don't raise it, we're raising taxes. We're cutting spending. We're America. We pay our bills. No, that's not what we're saying. The Secretary of the Treasury is saying, if we don't raise this debt ceiling and we're just, you know, a few votes shy and if we don't raise the debt ceiling, that's it. You're out of luck. We ain't paying. We only pay our old creditors if we can sucker in enough new creditors to lend us the money. But if we ever run out of new suckers, well, the suckers that are in are the bag holders. I mean, it's amazing to hear all this. Janet Yellen basically saying that, hey, the dollar could lose the reserve currency status if we default on our bonds. It should be losing that status based on the fact that we're threatening to default on the bonds if we can't borrow more money. I mean, if that's not an admission that we are running the world's greatest Ponzi scheme, I don't know what is. And how does Janet Yellen reassure our creditors by admitting that they're in a Ponzi scheme? This is a real twilight zone. The price of gold should be soaring. The dollar should be getting killed. None of that is happening. In fact, if you look at some of the biggest gold mining stocks in the world, like Newmont, for example, the stock hit a new 52-week low today. I mean, a lot of these gold and silver stocks were down 4 or 5% this morning. Despite all of this very, very bullish news for gold, gold was down. I mean, gold wasn't down a lot, but these stocks got killed on nothing but good news. Now, the stocks paired their losses. In fact, the indexes, the GDX, GDXJ, these indexes managed to close out the day with small gains. I mean, nothing spectacular, but at least they got out of the jail that they were in in the early morning. But these stocks should be soaring based on all this good news. And I think one of the reasons, or maybe the primary reason, that the stocks are going down is because so many people are disappointed that they're not going up. 
and they're throwing in the towel. Remember, a lot of people like myself who bought gold stocks, and of course, I don't only own gold stocks. The second biggest allocation in my personal portfolio is oil stocks. And all my oil stocks hit 52-week highs today. So I'm making money on my oil stocks. I should be making even more money on my gold stocks, but I'm not. And I think a lot of other people are very frustrated because they were right and they're not getting paid. Meaning that the people who were loading up on gold stocks a few years ago were doing it because they expected a lot of inflation. In fact, when COVID started, you go back to my podcast that I was doing in March of 2020 when oil prices went negative and everybody was talking about how COVID was deflationary. I said the exact opposite. I said, no, COVID is an inflationary event. I explained that the people who were focusing on the temporary reduction in demand because everybody was hunkered down in quarantine, I said they had to focus on the supply problems that were going to result from fewer people working while those people were staying home, they weren't going to work. So they weren't producing the stuff that we needed to buy. And so I focused on the fact that those declines in prices were a temporary phenomenon that would reverse. I also said that the markets were missing the inflationary aspects of the government's COVID response, which was to shower the country and the world with paper money. Remember, everybody said we have to make sure that the unemployed keep spending. That was everybody's goal, to make sure that the people that were staying at home and didn't have jobs, that they didn't lose their incomes. But nobody focused on the fact that, yes, they were staying at home. That meant they weren't working. Well, their incomes came from their work. You can't eliminate the work without eliminate the income. You can't say, hey, we're going to have all of our people go home and stop working, but they're going to get paid anyway because what are they going to buy? Because they're no longer helping to produce anything. When the people have jobs and they go to work, their labor results in productivity. There's goods or services that are being produced. You can't just say, hey, everybody's going to go home, but the government is going to replace your lost income because who replaces their lost productivity? Nobody. So I pointed out, and I was one of the only people that was doing it back then, that the real effect of COVID was going to be a double whammy on inflation because COVID was going to have the effect of reducing the supply of goods thanks to fewer people producing goods while increasing the demand for those goods because of all the extra money the governments were going to print to stimulate the economy and try to protect everybody from the adverse effects of COVID. And so it was the perfect storm of inflation. And we're seeing the manifestations of that now. Everything that I was talking about is now playing out before our eyes. And all the people that were in denial, all the people that were talking deflation a year ago, all the people at the Fed are still in denial and claiming that it's all transitory. Until yesterday, Bullard, and I hinted at this in the opening of the podcast, and I couldn't believe this when I read the quotes. I didn't hear him say it, but Bullard actually came out 
and said something honest for a change, although understated, but honest. He said that higher inflation is here to stay. He basically admitted that the CPI numbers are not going to fall back to 2%. And he said that we had better get used to higher inflation for some time, like an extended period of time. Now, that flies in the face of the repeated reassurances from the Fed chair, Powell. What has Powell said? He said that the Fed will not allow inflation to be above 2%. If inflation expectations become unanchored, even though they're already adrift, it's anchors away with the expectations at 3% or higher at 10-year highs. But Powell has said, no, no, no. We're not going to have to get used to high inflation. The Fed won't let that happen. The Fed has tools that it will use to make sure that inflation stays anchored at 2%. Well, now you have St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard coming out singing a completely different tune, a more honest tune, where he says, hey, we just got to get used to higher inflation. It's going to be with us for a long time. That's true. It's just going to be here even longer and be even worse than what Bullard is admitting to or even understands at this point. But the fact that he said it and there's no real reaction to the price of gold, there's no real reaction in the price of gold or in the dollar. Remember, the main reason that gold has not gone up despite all of the evidence of rising inflation, the main reason that gold and silver mining stocks have been the ironic victims of higher inflation is because everybody believes the Fed that they will not tolerate the high inflation. So the more evidence that the markets see that inflation is worse than thought, the more they sell the gold stocks because that inflation data provides them with more evidence that the Fed is going to tighten, that the Fed is going to fight off inflation and succeed. It's going to win this battle. And so there's going to be all sorts of collateral damage in the mining stocks as the Fed successfully fights off inflation. Now, why do people believe that the Fed's going to do that? Well, because that's what Powell says. And for some reason, no matter how wrong Fed governors have been in the past, remember Ben Bernanke, don't worry about subprime, it's contained, right? So Fed was completely wrong there, yet for some reason, None of the Fed's credibility is lost. And so when Powell says, don't worry, inflation is transitory. And if it's not, we've got the tools. We're going to fight it. The market believes it. And so all this inflation, all the evidence that it's getting worse, instead of buying gold and buying gold stocks, they're selling gold and dumping gold stocks, expecting the Fed to do something. But now Bullard lets the cat out of the bag basically gives you a peek at the cards that Powell is really holding. Because I've been saying it's a bluff. He's got no intention of raising interest rates and fighting inflation. But of course, the one thing he can't do is admit that. So he's got nothing in his hand. And so he has to bluff. And so he pretends he's going to fight inflation. But I keep pointing out that if the Fed could fight inflation, it already would have. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to sit idly by and watch all this happen. If you really have the tools to stop it, 
you would use them. You wouldn't just be betting it all on hopes that this is all transitory, especially when you know you're making an all or nothing bet because if the Fed bets wrong, it's economic Armageddon. I mean, can you imagine if the Fed waits until inflation is 10% and then finally tries to fight it, put that genie back in the bottle, the damage that would be done to an even more over-leveraged economy? No, if the Fed really had the ability to use these tools, it would be using them. It would be doing something to prevent inflation from getting much worse right now. There would be no reason to take a chance on it being transitory unless you felt the consequences would be so bad of fighting inflation now that you got no choice but to bet it all on transitory. And that tells you how bad it would be to fight the inflation now if the Fed doesn't want to do it and is willing on taking a chance that it's going to get much, much worse. And imagine how bad it's going to be if the Fed were to fight inflation after it got much worse. Because <laughs> if it's afraid to fight it now, how's it going to do it later? It's not. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month, I thought, hey, what's the catch? But you know, after speaking with them and learning about their service, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. And by cutting out the retail stores, there's no crazy overhead cost to get passed on to you in the form of all those mystery fees. Instead, Mint Mobile passes on the sweet savings directly to you. In fact, when it came time to get a cell phone for our 8-year-old son, Mint Mobile's plan definitely fit the bill. For people looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with an unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium Wi-Fi services starting at just 15 bucks a month. So to get your new wireless plan and pay just 15 bucks a month, and to get the plan shipped right to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. Cut your wireless bills all the way down to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gold. In fact, even former President Donald Trump was out there warning about inflation. He was calling it scary, and he said that he expects inflation to soon ravage the country. And of course, he ought to know because Donald Trump played a role in helping the Fed create all the inflation that Trump now expects to ravage the country. Because when Trump was president, he was egging Powell on. He was demanding, he was pounding the table for more money printing. He actually wanted negative interest rates. He thought 0% was too high. He wanted the Fed to flood the country with money. He was pounding the table, more QE, bigger QE, negative interest rates. And now he's warning the country about rising prices. Well, what does he think causes prices to go up in the first place? It's the very monetary policy that he was advocating. In fact, as president, he helped run up the deficits 
by both cutting taxes and increasing government spending on both welfare and warfare, and then demanding that the Fed monetize the resulting increases in the deficit. And even adding to the irony, Donald Trump claims that his decision on whether to run for a second term in 2024 rests in large part on inflation. Basically, he's saying if inflation turns out to be a big problem, he wants to run as the solution. So in other words, he helped light the fire and now he wants to run for re-election, claiming that he's the guy to help put it out. But this statement from Bullard should have basically been an eye-opener. It should have been like an emperor has no clothes moment in the markets and people should have just started dumping dollars and buying gold. Yet they still haven't done it. It's like they need this giant anvil to come down and hit them on the head before they actually get it. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But my point here is that the people like me who were correct 
in their anticipation of inflation and the Fed's inability to do anything to rein it in. And because of that, they bought gold stocks because historically, if there is a unexpected increase in inflation and the Fed gets behind the curve, the biggest beneficiaries are gold mining stocks. But it's not happening. Everything that we thought was going to happen in the economy, with inflation, with the deficits, it's all happening, but we're not getting paid. And, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about buy the rumor, sell the fact. Well, normally, when you buy the rumor and you're correct and you get around to selling the fact, you get a profit. You sell it into a higher price. But here you have a situation where people bought the rumors of inflation and now they're going to sell the news, the fact that there is inflation and that they were right, but they're losing on their gold stocks. The gold stocks are lower than they were when they bought them anticipating inflation. And that's another reason that people are selling because they expected to make money on these gold stocks with higher inflation. And now we have higher inflation and they're losing money on their gold stocks. So they're throwing in the towel, get out. And I'm hearing a lot of people talking about the fact that, see, this proves that gold is irrelevant. It no longer has any value. You know, it's been replaced by Bitcoin. And I suppose Bitcoin being back above 50,000, in fact, it's above 51,000 as I'm recording this podcast, that probably doesn't help. Uh, or lends credibility to the argument that gold is obsolete, that the young people no longer like it or are interested in it. And I don't think it's a lot of people who are buying Bitcoin instead of gold. I think there are a lot of people who aren't buying Bitcoin or gold, but one of the reasons they may not be buying gold is that they assume other people will buy Bitcoin instead, even though they're not buying it themselves. It feeds into the story that somehow gold is obsolete. Meanwhile, gold has never been more relevant. I think gold's role in the future of money is going to be even more relevant than a role it played in the past because I think people are missing the technological revolution and what it really means to gold because if you marry gold with the digital revolution, even if you want to include the blockchain in that, gold today is better suited to function as money for the world, not just for an individual country, but gold is more suited to serve as money than ever before. Marrying gold with technology and the internet, blockchain, whatever you want, makes gold more fungible, makes it more divisible, makes it easier to transact in than it has in the past, But the most important thing is you don't lose the underlying fundamental value of the metal itself that gives it the value necessary to qualify as money, to be a store of value, and to also have the ability to function as a unit of account and as a medium of exchange in a way that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin never will. So I think it's ironic that as gold is probably more relevant than ever and more needed than ever to bring stability into the monetary chaos that defines the world right now, people don't see it. And to me, this just extends the buying opportunity in gold and silver and in particular in these mining stocks because when this thing turns 
it is going to turn on a dime and it is just going to skyrocket. I think it's going to be a face-ripping rally uh, that will take no prisoners if you're short, won't give you the time to jump on board if you're on the sidelines. You've got to be invested and don't get discouraged by what's happening right now. Too many people are being discouraged and it is becoming a self-perpetuating spiral and validating this false premise that gold is obsolete, that it's been replaced by other inflation hedges or other commodities. But you know, it's not just gold that is ignoring reality. I mean, look at the dollar. The dollar's not going down. So all of you that are trying to claim, oh, Bitcoin is going up because people are losing confidence in the dollar. Who's losing confidence in the dollar? The dollar's not going down either. I mean, you've got all this ridiculous misplaced confidence in the U.S. dollar despite all the stuff that's going on. Like today, for example, I mentioned again in the beginning of the podcast, the record trade deficit. We got this morning the trade deficit for August. The July deficit was $70.1 billion, which actually got revised up. So it was $70.3 billion, so higher than originally reported. The consensus was for $70.7 billion. We blew that out of the water. The actual deficit came out at $73.3 billion. That is the single largest monthly trade deficit in the history of the United States. Now, this is not the trade deficit just in goods. This is the unified deficit, which includes goods and services. And this is the worst it's ever been. Of course, this record's not going to stand very long. We'll probably break it in September and maybe break it again in November or December and then continuously shatter the record in 2022. This is terrible news for the U.S. dollar, right? This means that America is exporting record numbers of dollars and the world doesn't need them. So why isn't the dollar falling? I mean, you can say, well, we've been having these terrible trade deficits for years and years, and so the dollar hasn't fallen, and so why should it fall now? Well, once upon a time, bad trade deficits killed the dollar. You know, we're back in October again, and even though the markets are hanging in there, though we've had some pretty decent volatility in the market so far in October, so we'll see how this plays out. I still think the NASDAQ is on pretty shaky ground right now, but... One of the major catalysts for the 1987 October stock market crash was the then record trade deficit that we had in September, I think, or October of 1987. I mean, that trade deficit was tiny compared to what we got now, but at the time, it was pretty scary when people had a more rational understanding of economics, and the record trade deficits We're both pushing down the dollar and bond market. So interest rates were rising as America's creditors were dumping dollars because of these record trade deficits. And that really was the catalyst for the stock market crash. Right now, there is no real effect. I mean, the bond market was down today and interest rates were up. But if you look at where the yields are, I mean, we're still barely at 2.1% on the 30-year bond, the 10-year is 1.53. I mean, these are nothing compared to where we should be in normal times, let alone times like this where we're running these record trade deficits. 
And what do these record trade deficits tell you about the U.S. economy? They tell you it's a disaster. This is not a strong economy. Why do we have these trade deficits? It's because of all the stimulus. The stimulus is so weakening the economy. The result of this is these huge trade deficits. Now, a lot of people say, no, Peter, the trade deficits are a sign of a strong economy because we're buying all this stuff. If we had a strong economy, we would be making the stuff that we're buying. In fact, if we had a strong economy, we would be making so much stuff that we would export the surplus. We would be making more stuff than we can consume ourselves. And we would sell off the surplus to the rest of the world. That's what strong economies do. They produce an abundance of stuff. We don't have a strong economy. We have a weak economy. Now, we have strong consumers because they got all this cash. Where'd they get all the cash? The government created it. The Federal Reserve printed it. And so they're spending this cash, not because the economy is strong, but because the Fed is printing all this money and handing it to them. And our trading partners are dumb enough to accept it and exchange all the stuff that they're producing for the money that we're printing. In fact, they're sending us so much stuff, you can't even get a container. Look at the ships backed up off the coasts. All this stuff that our weak economy can't afford to produce, the rest of the world is producing it for us and taking these little bits of paper, even though we're printing them like they're going out of style. And at the same time that we are running these record trade deficits, you have the Secretary of the Treasury running around telling everybody that we're going to default on the debt, telling everybody that we're running a gigantic Ponzi scheme, right? Violating the main tenant, Ponzi 101. When you are running a Ponzi scheme, you keep it quiet. You don't let anybody know it's a Ponzi scheme. But of course, Janet Yellen flunked Ponzi 101. But she's right out there saying, yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. But don't worry, because we're never going to run out of suckers, right? It's a chain letter with an infinite amount of chain. How can you have a situation where against this backdrop of threatened default, soaring trade deficits, soaring budget deficits, skyrocketing prices with no end in sight. And again, it's not just energy. Look at what's happening to random commodities. Take a look at the price of cotton. Cotton was up another 4% today. It's up 60% on the year. No one's talking about it. Now, you know, believe it or not, even though we're at a 10-year high in the price of cotton, It was a lot higher in 2008. Cotton prices have to double from here to get back to where they were in 2008. Remember where oil prices were in the summer of 2008? They were almost $150 a barrel. So commodities still have a long way to go to get to where they were in 2008. But you know what? I think they're going to make the entire trip in 2022. But 2022 is not going to be the peak like it was in 2008. It might just be the launching pad where we go ballistic to much higher levels. Because what happened in 2008 to bring an end to those soaring prices? We had the financial crisis. That's what happened. We had the implosion in the real estate market. And all of that led to a massive rise in the value of the dollar that brought down all these commodities. The interesting thing about the commodity bull market now is that it's happening without the dollar falling. So imagine what's going to happen when the dollar finally starts to fall because it was a rising dollar that put the brakes on these price increases in 2008. It's a falling dollar that's going to send them soaring. 
because the dollar hasn't even started to drop yet. I mean, if you think that we've got an inflation problem now, if you're looking at these soaring prices in an environment where the dollar has been firm, imagine what's going to happen when we start to see the type of declines that we had leading up to 2008. The dollar index in 2008 was down at 70. It's like 94 now. So we've got a long way to fall in the dollar, which means we still have a long way to go up in commodity prices because once the dollar starts to fall, that brings down commodity prices all over the world, which means demand goes up all over the world as the dollar goes down. And that puts added pressure on these markets that are already constrained by supply And so it's, again, going to be the perfect storm. So prices are going to go much, much higher. And what does that mean for the U.S. economy? That's even worse because our trade deficits are going to go up because the cost of our imports are going to go up and the cost of importing our imports are going to go up because of the shipping costs. And here's the ultimate of ironies. Pretty soon, the Fed is going to look at rising prices as a reason not only not to taper, but to expand quantitative easing. They're going to start to look at big increases in consumer prices, particularly energy, and they're going to view that as a tax hike, as contractionary policy, which they're going to look to offset with easy money policy. That's what's coming. And in fact, for all this talk about the taper, it seems very unlikely that Powell is going to be able to do it. I mean, his reappointment now is even less certain than it was when I did my last podcast. Now you've got another Fed governor embroiled in insider trading scandal. And it appears that this guy was timing his buys and sells around key policy statements by the Fed that would move markets. So I think that Powell is now completely tainted by the scandal. And you've got a lot of people up on the hill like Elizabeth Warren and her ilk that want to get rid of them. And so now Biden has an excuse to do it and replace him with an even bigger dove. Imagine that. You know, as reckless as Powell has been, he's a Republican. Imagine what happens when we get a real liberal Democrat in there who actually wants to use the Fed to affect this socialist policy agenda to finance all the government spending, the Green New Deal, or whatever it is they've hatched up, and they're going to use the Fed to provide the money. Because after all, even the Democrats, despite all their rhetoric, they don't want to tax the rich because the rich give too much money to their campaigns. See, they want to tax the middle class. They just don't have the guts to tell them that because they want their votes. So they're going to let the Fed do their dirty work because nobody realizes what's going on. And so they're going to appoint a super dove to replace Powell, and they're going to get more doves to replace these so-called chicken hawks who are leaving the Fed now because of the scandal. People are not thinking about how the composition of the Fed is about to change in a way that should be very negative for the dollar and very positive for the price of gold, yet it's still having no effect. There's so much going on in the world today. There's a lot of news that you want to keep on top of. There's also a lot of added stress. And what better way to relieve some of the stress than by listening to some pleasant music. Whether you need to pump up or wind down, work or work out, Raycon should be your go-to for on-the-go audio. That's why we've teamed up with Raycon 
And you can get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash gold. Their new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever with an improved rubber oil look and feel and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These earbuds are impressive even before you start listening to the music. And you get three sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. You've got Pure Mode for podcast listening, The Peter Schiff Show. Pure Mode's my personal favorite. Can't beat it for listening to podcasts or the news. You got Balance Mode, which is also good for podcast listening, but also rock, heavy metal, stuff like that. And you got Bass Mode for your hip-hop, your reggae, EDM. There's also an all-new awareness mode for those times when you want to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycons offer 8 hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds with the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. And right now, you can get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com gold. That's buyraycon.com gold to save 15% on Raycons. And you know, I forgot to mention, too, not only is Janet Yellen you know, going around scaring all of our creditors about how we're going to default and not pay them back if we can't go deeper into debt. But I forgot to mention, too, on the podcast where I went over her congressional testimony that she had with that joint appearance with Jerome Powell, she is now on record as officially being in favor of removing the debt ceiling entirely through legislation, saying we don't want a debt ceiling, right? The sky's the limit. We want the U.S. government to borrow any amount of money. Just whatever we need to spend, we want to be able to borrow it. We don't want to have some kind of pesky ceiling standing in the way of all this debt. That, too, should be sending chills throughout the market. As if people were actually dumb enough to take some comfort in the fact that there was a debt ceiling. But in the past, I would say that some of the deals to slow the growth of spending and to rein in the debts were forged in the fires of a debt ceiling showdown. And of course, every time they went through this charade, I always said that, look, it's not going to work. Nothing is going to happen. None of these goals are going to get met. All of the agreements they make today, future Congresses will not be bind by them. They will unravel them. But one thing is probably sure that because of all these agreements and all this congressional wrangling and grandstanding, I'm sure that the deficits would have been larger but for these efforts. Not that the efforts actually worked and actually did anything to reduce the deficit. The national debt keeps on growing and Congress and the presidents keep on acting recklessly and irresponsibly. But I'm sure had there never been a debt ceiling and we never had any of these charades and we never had any half-assed efforts to try to rein in spending, we would have a much larger national debt than the one we have today. So I'm sure on the margins, the debt ceilings have done something, right? They haven't stopped the debt from going up, but I'm sure the debt has risen more slowly with a movable ceiling then it would have risen with no ceiling at all. So if now we're basically telling everybody we're getting rid 
of that debt ceiling. Well, if we borrowed so much money when we had a ceiling, imagine how much more we're going to borrow when we don't have a ceiling and the sky's the limit. I want to switch gears, though, and talk a little bit about the vaccine mandates because I've been getting a lot of emails and people you know, want me to weigh in my opinion on what I think about, you know, the vaccines and the requirements that people get vaccinated, get the booster shots. And what I don't really want to talk about on this podcast is whether or not I think the vaccines are efficacious or whether or not I think that they work or that they work in all circumstances. And if even the people who have a natural immunity who got COVID and now got better, if they should get vaccinated, if young people that are really not at risk of any kind of severe health issues in the event that they contract COVID, whether or not they should get vaccinated or whether or not children, they're now talking about children as young as five years old are getting vaccinated, right? I'm not going to talk about whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea, right? You can look at the science, you can look at arguments on both sides. And one of the things I've, I've discovered, you know, a lot of people who come out against the vaccines end up in a lot of trouble on social media. I mean, they end up getting maybe banned or deplatformed. So that tells you a little bit about where the powers that be stand on the idea of freedom of speech when it comes to the subject of the vaccines and whether or not everybody should get them. I want to just talk about it from a different perspective, and that is the perspective of individual liberty and freedom, and specifically for the United States, the role of the federal government and the limited powers that the federal government has relative to the states. But first of all, just on an individual liberty basis, right? If you just take it for granted, right? Assume for the sake of argument that the vaccines are great, that everybody should have a vaccine, no matter who you are, no matter your age, whether you've gotten COVID and gotten better or not. Let's just say that the data shows that everybody would be better off if everybody got vaccinated. Let's just say for the sake of argument that that's the case. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but let's just assume it is. Even if that is the case, I am opposed and every Americans should be opposed to the U.S. government mandating a vaccine or requiring a vaccine passport or putting all sorts of federal restrictions on the unvaccinated. The decision to get vaccinated needs to be left to the individual. And I don't care if your perspective is, well, it's good for society if everybody gets vaccinated. It's not about what's good for society. We are not a collectivist society. We're not like a bunch of bees in a hive. This is not a Soviet republic. We don't do what is good for society. We do what's good for ourselves. We are a society of individuals. The individual is supreme. The individual is above society. And you cannot force an American citizen to sacrifice himself for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of society, especially when you allow government to decide what the benefit of society is, right? What is in the public good? Because it's almost like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. But it's especially dangerous if you let the government define what's in the public good and then everybody has to sacrifice their own individual liberty 
for the public good as defined by government. Because governments have a history, especially corrupt governments and and despotic governments, and of course all governments, as they have more power, tend to become more corrupt. And as they have absolute power, will they become corrupt absolutely, to quote Lord Acton. But one way to give a government more power is to allow that government to define the public good and then force everybody to subjugate their own liberties to that definition of the public good. Because maybe everybody getting vaccinated is in the public good. Maybe it's not. But if it is, and then you say that the government can force us to surrender our individual liberty because they've determined that these vaccines are in the public good, well, now we set a precedent that the government gets to determine the public good and then force us to give up our rights in order to pursue that definition of the public good. And so right now it has to do with vaccines and COVID, but we have no idea what it might have to do with in the future. I use the expression a lot about the camel's nose under the tent. You don't want to do that. You don't want to establish the precedent of letting the U.S. government define what's in the public good and then have the power to force people to do what it believes is in the public good. This might especially be true with children if they're talking about having parents and forcing the parents to vaccinate their kids on the basis that it's good for society. I mean, what if they say, hey, you know, you can't homeschool your kids anymore either because that's not good for society. We think it's good for society if all the kids go to public schools and are socialized and indoctrinated, whatever. We think it's bad for society if some kids are stuck at home with their parents. And so we're going to take away that choice for the good of society, for the good of the public. You can't just choose to homeschool your kids for the good of society. You need to send your kids to public school. I mean, it's the same principle. So we cannot allow the government to mandate vaccines, certainly not the federal government, right? Now, I would have a little bit of a different opinion, at least with the legality of local governments, but I would say that the mandates could not be on the individual itself. The mandates would have to be that vaccines be required in public places where the health of the public is a concern and a government wants to say, well, you know, you want to enter a public building, let's say a public library. I'm not sure that anybody even goes to libraries anymore. So maybe that's not a good example, but they can say, hey, if you want to go to a library, well, you know, you got to be vaccinated. And if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can't go to the library, but at least you're not required to get a vaccine because no one's required to go to the library. But that requirement that might apply to public places of interaction, it should not apply to the private sector, meaning that the government cannot tell a private entrepreneur, the proprietor of a business, that all of his workers must be vaccinated or all of his customers must be vaccinated. Those choices must be made by the business owners and by the employees and the customers, meaning if a business owner wants to provide a business working environment where everybody has a vaccine, then you can't work at that company unless you get a vaccine. And so if you don't want to get a vaccine, then you have to choose to work for a company where vaccines are not required or start your own business and not require a vaccine. So everybody gets a choice. But when the government mandates that everybody has to get a vaccine, the government is taking away individual choice. Now, I know a lot of people, I I put out a tweet 
and I mentioned this, and I got a lot of likes and response in that tweet, but one of the criticisms that I got, and it was quite common, people said, well, you know, what about traffic laws, right? Everybody has to stop at a red light. Everybody has to drive under the speed limit, right, for the good of everybody else. And so if the government can require me to stop at a red light, you know, for the good of other people, well, they can require me to get vaccinated for the good of other people. And while on the surface, that may sound reasonable, once you get beneath the surface, you realize that it's an apples to orange comparison. And here's why. Nobody has to drive on a public road, right? It may be convenient to use a public road, but you don't just have a right to use that road. You don't own that road. The road is owned collectively by the public and the public has a right to establish guidelines, rules of the road that everybody agrees to abide by if they're going to use that road for the safety of all the other people who choose to use the road. So if you're not going to obey the traffic laws, if you're just going to run red lights and drive as fast as you want, well, you, you can't use the road, right? So if you want to do those things, you know, you got to do them someplace else. Now, it may be difficult. There may not be a private road that you could use, or maybe it's difficult to just ride off road in the dirt somewhere and risk destroying your car. But, you know, you don't have to use the public roads if you don't want to. You know, you don't have to drive a car. There's other ways of transporting yourself around. You could stay at home, right? But if you want to use the road, then you got to obey the laws. But if the government says everybody has to get a vaccine, that's different because you don't have a choice. And I don't think that governments have a right to force you to do something simply because it benefits somebody else, right? You can't tell somebody to subjugate their own health for the health of somebody else. There may be people that don't want the vaccines for whatever reason, and you can't say you've got to get the vaccine because it's going to protect your neighbor. Let your neighbor protect himself by getting the vaccine. In fact, when you're telling everybody that they need to get the vaccine to protect the people who have the vaccine, you're kind of undercutting the message that the vaccines work if you're saying that the vaccinated aren't really protected against getting COVID. And that's why we got to force all the people who aren't vaccinated to get vaccinated. If the vaccines work, why aren't the people who get vaccinated covered, right? That's, that, that probably creates a lot of suspicion in and of itself. But also, if you're going to try to argue that the vaccine benefits the vaccinated person and that the government should mandate that people get vaccinated for their own good, again, that is completely unconstitutional. The government should not be telling people what they have to do for their own good. Now, I know we have a precedent of that. I mean, we have the government butting in. Like I mentioned, the rules of the road, seatbelt laws, People are required to wear seatbelts. I don't think those are right. I mean, you can require people to stop at a red light because that protects other people. You can require people to drive below a certain speed limit for the protection of other people. But I don't think you could force somebody to protect himself by requiring that he wear a seatbelt. And certainly, you know, when the federal government steps in, I mean, the federal government has no business getting involved in speed limits. At one time, we had a federal 55 mile an hour speed limit. I think that was unconstitutional. I don't think it was the right thing for the federal government to interfere. But, you know, the way the federal government did this, the way they got around the Constitution and the courts let them get away with it. Not that many people know that is they didn't actually pass a law that said the speed limit is 55. 
they basically said that any state that didn't pass a 55 mile an hour speed limit would lose their federal highway funds. And so in order to get the highway funds, the states had to, on their own, lower the speed limit to 55 miles an hour. Now, they did that maybe to get around the Constitution because had they actually set a national speed limit of 55 miles an hour, maybe it would have been challenged and maybe it would have been declared unconstitutional. So the government got around the Constitution through extortion. But I don't think that that's legal. If the government doesn't have the constitutional authority to do something, then it doesn't have the constitutional authority to extort the states into doing it for them. You can't say, hey, we're not going to give you these highway funds unless you do what we want. Because if that is true, since we're given the government, the federal government, this huge power of taxation, and if then the way the country works is we send all this money to the U.S. government, right? All the states, they send all the money to Washington, and then they beg for some of the crumbs back. If the government can put all kinds of strings on those crumbs and say the only way that you can get some of your tax revenue back is if you do exactly what we're saying, even though there's no constitutional authority for us to force you to do this because we now control the purse strings, you know, we're going to make you do it. This is a illegal end run around the Constitution. And I think the whole thing should have been thrown out, but it was not. But that's, again, an example of what should not be done on a federal level. So if we're going to have any of these vaccine-type mandates, it should be on the local level and the state level, but not for private property. The decisions by private businesses and by private homes and individuals need to be left to the individual. And, of course, there are other examples where the government passes laws where they try to protect us from ourselves, right? You have laws against drugs. You have laws against gambling. You have laws against prostitution. Of course, all of this is supposed to protect the public from harming themselves, right? Don't take these drugs because they're going to be harmful to you. Don't visit prostitutes or don't be you know, a prostitute because it's going to somehow harm you or don't gamble. You're going to lose your money. But here's the irony. The government actually makes all this stuff worse. Take gambling, right? Most states outlaw gambling, but then they run their own state lotteries. The reality is no private lottery company or any other casino would give you odds as bad as a state-run lottery. I mean, the vigorish that the state takes, right? The amount of money that they keep on every lottery is huge. If there was a free market in gambling in the states, No casino operator, no lottery operator would ever get away with ripping off its customers to that degree. But what happens is the government, based on the pretense that it's going to protect us from gambling, right? They outlaw all competition and now they come in as the only source of legal gambling and then they rip everybody off. So people end up losing more money gambling than they would have lost had it been legal. You know, same thing backfires when it comes to drugs. You know, the government says, okay, we're going to protect you. We're going to make drugs illegal. Well, you know what? If drugs were legal, they'd be a lot healthier. They wouldn't be laced with all kinds of impurities. You wouldn't be buying them on the street from some criminal, you know, taking your chances on what the hell you're ingesting, right? You would have high quality drugs if you could buy them legally. And so the drugs are far more dangerous because the government made them illegal 
They're far more unhealthy. And of course, by making them illegal, you create this huge profit opportunity. You have this whole underground economy. You have all these pushers uh, that are trying to get people addicted to drugs so they can make a huge profit off of them. And then, of course, you get all this crime that wouldn't even exist if the drugs were legal. We wouldn't have all this crime because there'd be laws. And if drugs were legal, you know, something like heroin would cost a lot less. And so heroin addicts, I think there'd be fewer heroin addicts if it were legal, actually, than there are right now. But those heroin addicts wouldn't be as big a problem for society. They wouldn't be stealing so much. I mean, I don't know, like 90% of the thefts, I think, in this country or something like that are committed by drug addicts who are stealing money so they can afford the high price of illegal drugs. And so people that don't even use drugs are victimized by drugs because they get their stuff stolen. But if the drugs were legal and the price was a lot lower, then the drug addicts wouldn't have to steal your money to afford the drugs. And of course, if the drugs were legal, they would be a lot safer. So they wouldn't have as many overdoses. The addicts wouldn't have as big a problem, right? So the government makes that worse. Same thing with prostitution. I mean, think of how much safer and how much less of a blight on society prostitution would be if it were legal. You think if there was legal prostitution, they'd be walking the streets? No, I mean, it would be so easy for people to hire prostitutes if it was legal. It could be a lot more discreet. You wouldn't have the women on the streets. And you know, one thing that making prostitution legal would eliminate would be the pimps. You know, I mean, where are all the women's lib advocates out there, why aren't they arguing for decriminalizing prostitution to free up the women from having to deal with these pimps? I mean, why do people have pimps? Well, because prostitution is illegal and sometimes the Johns won't pay. And if the Johns don't want to pay, it's not like the prostitute could take them to court and like, hey, you know, we, we had a deal and I rendered these services and you didn't pay because that contract is illegal. You can't force somebody in court to pay you for sex. That's why you got a pimp to beat the crap out of the guy to make sure he pays. But of course, the pimps don't work for free. The women end up paying the pimps a lot of money. A lot of times the pimps end up abusing the women. You eliminate all the pimps if you eliminate all these laws against prostitution. But again, it should be up to the individual. If a man wants to hire a prostitute, that's his business. If a woman wants to become a prostitute, that's her right to do that. It's not up to society to make that judgment call and decide, hey, this is wrong and we're going to outlaw it, especially when you outlaw it. It doesn't go away. It's still there. It just becomes an even bigger problem. I mean, everything government does creates a bigger problem. Anything that government doesn't like, anything that's bad that the government wants to get rid of, when they start regulating it, when they start putting all these laws, they get more of it. The problems get worse. And so I think the same thing is going to happen with COVID or any other disease. Look, let the free market come up with COVID cures, COVID vaccines, COVID treatments. Let free information flow about the efficacy or the dangers of vaccines or treatments and let the market work. Let the doctors inform patients. Let the patients make informed decisions without the coercive force of the state. And you know what? Everything will get better, right? We will conquer this disease and we will conquer other diseases. We don't have to let the government use the disease as another pretense 
to give up individual liberties and our rights and to cede more power to an abusive and oppressive government because that's what's going on. And it's going to continue until people stand up for their rights and are willing to stand up for the principles of individual liberty and freedom, to stand up for the Constitution and to demand that our elected representatives respect the constitutional republic to which they were elected to serve and the judges enforce the Constitution that they took an oath to uphold. (laughs) 